as we continue in the messages of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We come this evening to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. The letter which the Lord Jesus Christ dictated to the Apostle John to the church at Pergamos. So we'll read together. I read aloud as you follow along in your copy of God's Word, verses 12, all the way down to verse 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's once again bow before God and plead for his blessing upon his holy word. Our gracious Father, once again we come here to this place and we are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus in order that we might hear your holy word, to hear what you would say to us from the scriptures. And as our brother has prayed, so we plead again that you would open our minds, our hearts to your truth and apply these things to our lives in the world in which we live. Come and speak to each one of us, Father, from your word, that we may know what you would say to us and how we may please you. We ask your mercies, not because we deserve them, but we come through the merits of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning I began with a question which has been in my mind and my heart, uh, since I since I since I formulated this, why do you attend church where you do? And the answer, the best answer, is that Christ is here. Christ is with His church. I have often been reminded by one of my elders 
that the Lord has promised to be present with his people, and he is always faithful to his promise. It is one of the reasons why we should be determined, and I'm speaking to people who are here in the evening service, right? But uh, we should always be careful to, to gather for worship unless we are providentially hindered, unless uh, the Lord allows us to get uh, seriously ill, or unless as we're uh, leaving our home, the car breaks down, or one of the many reasons that can prevent us. But we should be present when the people of God gather, when Christ will be present, unless we are providentially hindered, because Christ will be here. And we uh, must also be careful not to dictate how we will experience his presence. One of the Puritans had a very helpful section in his writings on what, how, how we know that we have communion with the Lord. And he, he, he tells us that the Lord has various ways in which he meets with us and deals with us. And so uh, sometimes his presence will bring us great joy. And we will welcome his presence and rejoice in him. But at other times, his presence will humble us. And that is just as real a presence of Christ with us as when he comes and he shows us his smiling face. It is our wisdom at such times to humble ourselves, to use Peter's language, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. His presence will always be a blessing one way or another. And this evening, what the Lord has for us is this solemn section in the message to the church at Pergamos. Uh, some translations have Pergamum, some have Pergamos, same place. Uh, this evening, we're going to look at this uh, church at Pergamos, and we will consider, similar to last time, the city of the church, Pergamos, Christ's commendation to the church, Christ's criticism of the church, Christ's encouragement of the faithful, and Christ's call to attention. So that's that's the roadmap. That's where we're going uh, this evening. Again, this is the portion that comes to us, the next portion in the seven letters. So we are just following the track of the Lord Jesus as he dictates to John what he writes to the church in Pergamum. So first of all, consider with me uh, briefly the city of the church, the city of the church, the place. Smyrna, last time we saw, was a, a prominent city in Asia Minor, that, that area that's now known as Turkey. That's, that's Asia Minor in biblical days. And uh, this church, Pergamos, like Smyrna, was a prominent city in Asia Minor. The Romans made this city the capital of that region known as Asia to them. Uh, idolatry was rampant in this city, and it was known, like other cities, for the worship of the emperor. And the wor worship of the emperor was mandated on the pain of death. And sin and persecution were freely practiced in Pergamum, 
so that our Lord named this place Satan's throne. Satan's evil works took many forms and they were, again, rampant and Pergamos. That's the city, Pergamos or Pergamum. Secondly, we're going to look at Christ's commendation of the church in verse 13. The Lord Jesus tells his church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faith, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan's, Satan dwells. So Satan was very active and seemingly successful. Even though this was the case, uh, the Lord Jesus lets his church know that he's very much aware of Satan's power and works. And you may say, well, of course, if Satan is that powerful and if Satan is that active, then the Lord Jesus would know, people would know, this is where Satan's throne is. Well, it's one of the interesting things about the strategies of Satan. Paul says we're not ignorant of his strategies, that many times he wishes to mask his activity where it is, is most profoundly demonstrated. Satan is one who likes to put himself forward, according to Paul, right, as an angel of light. And so he doesn't come dressed in a red felt suit with a forked tail and a pitchfork in his hand. He comes many times under other guises. And so here's a place where Satan's throne is. Indeed, his works are very evident there. But uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is not fooled. The people of God should not be fooled. The Lord Jesus lets his people know he knows that this is Satan's throne, the place of Satan's works and his power. So the Lord Jesus, uh, in his commendation of his church, tells them that he knows the, the plight of his church. Satan's works are the backdrop of our Lord's communication. Our Lord speaks to his church and he tells them, I know this, I know this about the place where you live and where your church meets and worships. One of their members, a man by the name of Antipas, by the way, a fairly common name. One of the Herods was actually named Antipas, Herod Antipas, but this is a different man. This is a believer in the church in Pergamos one of their members had been martyred for his public faith in Christ and his refusal to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. In all probability, what this was, the man was arrested and told that he must deny Christ and worship the emperor. And in those days, what you had to do, uh, if you were arrested and you didn't want to be executed for your faith, you had to sprinkle incense on some some burning material, and that was a, a sacrifice to the emperor and acknowledged that Caesar is Lord. Antipas refused to deny Christ. He refused to worship the emperor, and so he was executed for his faith there in Pergamos. Now, no details have come down in history about this martyrdom, but as you can imagine, if that had happened to us, if one of our people had been murdered for his faith, that would make a strong impression upon the people of God. Uh, it would cause great grief in the people of God, and perhaps in many people, there would be fear 
there would be people who said, well, who is next? And in, the, in our Bibles, we often do have waves of persecution like that in which someone is killed and then other people are arrested and set aside for murder. That happened in the days of, in the book of Acts, when uh, James was executed and then Herod goes and arrests Peter to kill him as well. But the Lord, as you know, had delivered him. So uh, this murder of one of their members would bring, bring pressure upon the rest of the church, the rest of the members, to wonder who's next and will I be able to stand the trial of having my life taken for my faith. But the Lord Jesus Christ commends the church for this very reason. He commends them because they had maintained their profession of faith in Christ. He says, you did not. Did not deny your faith in me. And these words are reveal valid encouragement to the brethren. So that's Christ's commendation of the church in verse 13. But this cannot tone down the words that follow. The words that follow are very solemn, very serious, very grievous to think about. Here we have Christ's criticism of the church in verses 14 through 16, a criticism of the church in uh, Pergamum, and it's actually a grievous criticism of the church in Pergamum. I want to set before you as we as we look at this this uh, this criticism by Jesus of his church in this city, uh, the tone of this criticism. In some ways, as I as I studied this passage, um, and I, I saw the the way the Lord puts this, I have a few things against you. There's something about that that sounds like maybe it's light. It's just a few things, but actually it is not. It's not a, a tone that uh, just a little bit is wrong. It's very serious. Uh, and, and the way that we see the seriousness is the way that Jesus introduces himself in his self-identification at the beginning of the letter. In uh, the second part of verse 12, notice it. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's what sets the tone of this letter to this church. He has the sharp two-edged sword. And the image is designed to provoke fear from a rightly offended Lord. That's, that's what's going on when the Lord Jesus Christ introduces himself. I have a sharp two-edged sword, and that's how I'm speaking to you, with my sword ready as it were. Some commentators suggest that Christ is going to use this sword to attack Satan. That's why he has the sharp two-edged sword. However, there's no hint of this in the letter. Satan is a defeated foe. Yes, Satan is going to uh, receive his time of judgment. The self-description of Christ actually is for the church. He's speaking about how he is uh, interacting with the church. He comes with a sharp two-edged sword. Some of the commentators suggest that some of the members were not concerned as concerned with the sins that were evident in the church. And then Christ's words would become a rebuke to them. 
because Christ is very concerned with the sins that are happening among the members of the church. In verses 14 and 15, the Lord Jesus identifies the sins which have to be corrected. Notice what the Lord says in verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You've been faithful. You've kept your faith. You haven't denied my name. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who are the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here are the Lord Jesus tells them what these few things are. The list is relatively short, but it's very, very serious. There are some, says Jesus, who hold the teaching of Balaam. And uh, those of you who are familiar with the uh, history in the book of Numbers will recognize that this was an event that happened when uh, Balak, Balaam realized that there was, that Israel was coming and that Israel was a great enemy to them and a great threat to them. And what Balak wanted to do was to curse Israel. He hired Balaam, the prophet, to try to curse the people of Israel as they traveled by his region. And you'll find that reference uh, in chapter 25. Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel so that they wouldn't be a threat to him, so they would not destroy him, but the Lord did not allow it. So what happens next is that Balaam taught Balak. That's what uh, Jesus says in Revelation here. Balaam taught Balak that he could arouse the anger of the Lord against Israel by influencing the Israelites to engage in two things, acts of idolatry. He would get the people of Israel to worship other gods, which would incite God's anger against Israel and bring judgment against Israel. And also, the second thing was to commit acts of fornication. Those things which were very widespread in the city of Pergamum. So there were, evidently, people in the church who encouraged idolatry, the worship of idols, and fornication. It would be good for us to take a moment, though, to turn back to the Numbers 25 passage, because I want you to see how this uh, strategy of Balak and Balaam is carried out. Gen uh, Numbers chapter 25, starting in verse 1. As we sometimes say, this is God's word. This is God's word. This is how God details the sins which occurred in Israel. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they, that is the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So there's the idolatry in Israel. Israel joined themselves, verse 3, to 
Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. You see, that's the stratagem of Balak and Balaam to make God angry to judge Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. How is the anger of the Lord turned away from Israel? By the judgment and execution of the, of the sinning leaders. So, verse 5, Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each one of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, surprise, a wonder, an awful wonder, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel they were, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the men of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. So this is the event which God is referring to when he talks about what some of the members of the church of Pergamum were guilty of they were guilty of teaching, both acting and teaching, that it's, it's just fine to uh, commit things, eat things, sacrifice to idols, engage in the common idolatry of Pergamos, and to commit acts of immorality. In Pergamos, as in many of those cities in ancient Rome, fornication was often joined to public worship in idol temples. So that was one of the things that were that was going on in the city of Pergamos. So there were people in the church who were encouraging idolatry and fornication and another group of people did much the same thing espousing the teaching of a group then known as the Nicolaitans. Now if you read the commentators you'll find out that the there are debates about who the Nicolaitans were. What we have here is enough to tell us that they were doing those same kinds of things, encouraging people to commit idolatry, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to engage in acts of sexual immorality. So there were three groups in the church, if you, if you follow carefully, three groups of, in the church. There was the one group that followed the teaching of Balaam, to, to incite idolatry and fornication. And then there was another group that did the same thing by the, uh, by the name under the name of the Nicolaitans. And then there was another group who engaged in none of those things and was not a part of either of these groups. So you had three groups of people in, in, in this line. So this is, uh, this is how Christ reproves the church and exposes their sin. Now, it's, it's never pleasant to think about those kinds of sins, especially for us who love the Lord Jesus Christ and love the law of God. It is distasteful. But you see, Christ faithfully 
sets before the people of God the things that are sinful, incite him to judgment, and the people of God must take account of what is going on. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells them that this is what needs to be dealt with. The idolatry and the fornication have to be dealt with, and that leads us to the to Christ's correction and motivation. Christ's correction and motivation. And our Lord's correction is direct, brief, and strong. It is correct, it is direct, brief, and strong. These sins are not to be tolerated at all. They are the evil teachings which must be rejected immediately. And while the Lord Jesus Christ is so direct with his people about the sins in which they are engaging, he's really very gracious to his church because he urges them to act right away to end this disgrace. They must act quickly. They must act decisively. They must stop immediately. And they must do so quickly because the Lord tells them that he's going to come quickly and he's going to make war against the impenitent. So the repentance must be quickly executed so that the people turn away from their sins, they confess their sins, they abandon their sins. Jesus tells them in one word, what the remedy is. He says, repent. That word repent means, a couple of different words for repent in the New Testament, this one means to turn the mind from one set of beliefs to another set of beliefs. It's a, it's a change of mind. They have embraced the teaching of Balaam, the son of Beor. They have embraced the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now they need to repent. They need to jettison them. They need to reject them immediately and change their conduct, abandon their sins. Now the Lord Jesus tells them that he's going to judge the impenitent. I'm going to come, I'm going to make war with the sword of my mouth. That is just as frightening as it sounds. What the Lord Jesus is going to do with the impenitent is he's going to destroy them. He's going to kill them. This is not the only time in the letters to the seven churches that Jesus says this kind of thing. He says he's going to act firmly and he's going to end it. If they don't end it with repentance, he's going to end it with his judgment. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says. But the interesting thing to me here is that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't say that he's going to unchurch the church. Remember in Ephesus, when the Lord Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, you've left your first love, he says, you must repent or else I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place. He's going to unchurch Ephesus if Ephesus doesn't repent. But here he doesn't say that. He doesn't threaten to unchurch the church. He threatens to judge quickly and thoroughly the impenitent sinners. But the church, by Christ's grace, will survive. So, we've looked at the church, the city of the church. We've seen Christ's commendation of the church. 
We've seen his criticism, his grievous criticism of the church in verses 14 through 16. And now Christ's encouragement of the faithful. Although Christ speaks with such strict seriousness, yet nevertheless, our Lord encourages the faithful. The Lord is very gracious to his people. He's going to judge sin especially where there is no repentance, but he does not propose to destroy it, despite these serious sins. And what the Lord does is he makes wonderful promises in verse 17. The encouragement of the faithful is in the wonderful promises of verse 17. After calling the other churches to attention, Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. So again, if you read commentators, you'll find that commentators have various ways in which they try to explain what the Lord Jesus Christ is promising to his people. But he's making wonderful promises to his people. There are people who have not engaged in the prevailing sins. They haven't committed idolatry. They haven't given themselves over to the fornication which is happening among some of their own members. They are overcomers already. There are some, though, who are believers, who have sinned, and they have repented and, and uh, abandoned their sins. They are overcomers also. So the overcomers are both those who have not sinned in this way and those who have sinned but repented in that way. And the Lord makes the same promises to his faithful people, his holy ones who have not sinned this way and his penitent who have sinned. And um, I'll give you my, my own suggestions about what these things are. I suggest that the manna is the spiritual food by which the Lord preserves his faithful people. Remember what the manna was in the wilderness. The manna was the way in which the Lord Jesus fed his people in the wilderness. He rained bread from heaven and the people were sustained. And I take the manna that Jesus promises to give, not that they're going to go outside their house and collect manna, but they are going to receive from the Lord his word, that's going to nourish and strengthen their souls. That's the manna that Jesus promises. The white stone is the forgiveness of sins and the communion with the Lord. So the Lord is promising that he will thoroughly forgive their sins and he will bring his, his people, his faithful people, to know real communion with him. So, we have looked at these several points, and now we come, finally, to Christ's call to attention. Christ's call to attention. It's a call, as in all of the letters, a call to all the churches. He says in verse 17a, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a... Uh, this is a directive from the Lord Jesus Christ, not just to the church at Pergamum, but to all the churches, to all the Christians. And he tells them, if you can hear 
If you have the spiritual ability to hear the word of God, then you ought to listen to what Jesus is saying, not just to the church at Pergamos, but to all the churches. And the reason why uh, the Lord Jesus speaks this way is because these sins are widespread in the Roman Empire. In every city, you're going to have these kinds of uh, idolatrous temples and places where there's going to be uh, immorality spread about. And all of the churches need to be on guard against these same sins. And they must be steeled against capitulating to the world in these kinds of sins. The Lord Jesus expects that his people will not tolerate these kinds of sins and that when they are present, they will be thoroughly and quickly repented of. The people of God must resist these sins and repent of them. It should not be difficult for us to understand how we apply these things to our lives. We live in a part of this country, in a part of this city, in which these kinds of sins proliferate. We live in a place where idolatry is rampant, where people worship themselves, where people worship their money, where people worship the pleasures that they may receive, and where people flaunt their sexual immorality everywhere. And we are a people, dear brethren, who must be on our guard. We have to be on our guard because everywhere Satan is proliferating solicitations to do evil things, solicitations to be self-satisfied, to engage in self-worship, to engage in the worship of the world. The world is putting forth its best efforts, its best advertisements to draw you away from the Lord Jesus Christ and draw you to worship the things that everybody else is worshiping. And the world is soliciting your complicity to sexual immorality in the thoughts of your mind, if not in the acts of your body. It is grievous to think not only of the degree to which sexual immorality occurs in our culture, but the degree to which every one of us, husbands, wives, married, single, young and old, are exposed to these kinds of temptations. I had to take my wife to a mall a couple of weeks ago she needed a new pair of shoes. She knew a place where she could buy the shoes which were very comfortable for her. And so I had to go to, into a mall. It was a grievous thing to see. Everywhere was immodesty. People walking around, families walking around. Women dressed immodestly with their husbands and their children. It was grievous. These are the things 
that people are exposed to everywhere. And people's moral sensitivities are being dulled. That's what we need to watch out for. That's what we need to resist. I don't read this and I don't preach this way because I think that you're a bunch of carnal people. Because that's not what I think of City View Baptist Church. I'm grateful to God for the modesty of our women. For the modest attire and the modest conduct and behavior of our people. But the world is pressing, brethren. The world is pressing. And there are people, probably some people whom you know who are capitulating to the course of this world, to the power of Satan to draw people away from the Lord Jesus Christ and give themselves over to sin. It can be very subtle. It can be very direct. But we have an obligation to our Savior and to one another to resist the tide of this world. We need to resist and we need to keep ourselves accountable to one another and we need to hear the things God says in his word about the results of all this immorality and what it does. I was thinking this afternoon of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and I'd like you to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. One of the things about the church in Thessalonica was it was a good church. It was a faithful church. Paul speaks in a very high commendation of the Thessalonian Christians. Look back with me at chapter 1 for a moment so you see what the point that I'm making here. He says, we, in verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You, you, you read those words? You see the kinds of people Paul's writing to in 1 Thessalonians? Genuine Christians. Genuine Christians who have real faith and godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now when you turn over to chapter 4, I want you to see the contrast. Because what Paul is saying is all of those good things I've said about you doesn't protect you from sin without your diligent, Watch care against the sins of the age. Notice how Paul speaks to these fine Christian people. In chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk. So you are walking pleasing to the Lord that you excel, excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. One of those blessings Christ gives to his people. Sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects that this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Brethren, even when we can say that we have kept up our guard and resisted these kinds of sins, it doesn't give us the right to be careless. We need to be careful. We need to remind ourselves that we are people with remaining sin and a clever devil who wants to bring God's judgment against his people. And so, brethren, we need to keep up our guard. It's not, not an accusation against you, brethren, but you know, brethren, you know what the world is like. At least I can say, I know people, professing Christians, who have given in to some extent to these kinds of things. And so we need to keep up our guard. And remember what the Lord Jesus Christ promises us, that to overcomers, they will be spiritually fed and enjoy communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember his faithful promises and remember his genuine judgments. That's one of the things that as reformed Christians, we can say, you see, some Christians don't want to hear anything about the Lord's judgments against sin, but that's not who we are, is it, brethren? These are things which are intended to keep us from sin. And so we want to pray that God will help us to be faithful to him in the midst of a very wicked and perverse generation. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father, we do bow before you, and we thank you for your faithfulness in bringing the word of God to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love your church so much that you will expose sin, and you will deal with sin, and you will cleanse and purify your church. And so we do pray you will help us, Lord, to keep a watch over our eyes, to watch what we see, that we be not participants in uncleanness by what we pass through our eyes. Help us, our God. Give us strength. Help us in our relationships of husbands and wives so that we will be faithful to one another and thus faithful to you. Have mercy on our children, Lord, our grandchildren who are brought up in this present evil age and help them, our God. Give them genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. Protect them, protect their hearts from this evil generation and give to your church holy Christian people for the following generation. We commit ourselves into your care we thank you that you love us and you gave yourself to us that we might be sanctified in your truth. 
Bring it to pass, our Lord, we ask in your own blessed name. Amen.